Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we will have honest, courageous, and fun conversations about how women are plugging into climate, energy, and sustainable solutions for the planet. I am your host, Megan Bennett, and on this podcast, I will be giving women who are doing the vital work of saving our planet a platform to share their stories, their ideas, and their dreams for a better future. And I hope these conversations will inspire us all to plug into our personal missions and expand what we think is possible for our families, our communities, our work, and ultimately our planet, starting today. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I tried something new with this episode for you. I moderated a panel session at the Association of Energy Services Professionals Annual Conference in New Orleans earlier in 2023 and recorded it in front of a live audience. The topic of the session was exploring our climate emotions as energy services professionals. And I shared the stage with three incredible women who you will meet shortly. Pamela Fan, Janae Wilcox, and Larissa Crawford. We recorded the session in front of a live audience, and this episode is that recording. The questions I asked about climate emotions took us deep into the work of climate justice and the impacts of systemic racism and colonization. The panelists shared how they care for these powerful emotions within these challenging contexts, how these emotions fuel their work and can impact their workplaces. Finally, ideas were shared on how we can do things differently to care for ourselves and our colleagues so that we can continue to have the resources and vitality necessary to do the work of these times. It was a powerful panel. The guests were so generous and brilliant. There was nothing that could be cut. So you get it all. An unedited, unfiltered, raw episode. Let's dive right into the panelists' introductions. Hi, everyone. It's good to see you all here this uh, wonderful afternoon. I'm Pamela Fan with Impact Energy. We are a certified Black women-owned energy services company that supports project installation through workforce development. Um, I'm also a certified diversity professional, certified diversity trainer, um, and do a lot of work within organizations um, and externally uh, with diversity, equity, inclusion, and what I like to call integration. Um, been doing this work in this sector for a long time, uh, and it's definitely needed. I'm really happy to be here, though, so thanks for including me. Thanks, Pam. Hi, Janae Wilcox. I am the current director of marketing for Posigen Solar and Energy Efficiency. We specialize in making solar savings, energy efficiency accessible to all homeowners, especially those in the low to moderate income spaces. Um, New Orleans resident, um, so I bring a little bit of local flavor here to the platform. And I have roughly about four years um, in the energy efficiency space, and so really excited to be here and have this discussion. Bonjour, hello, my name is Larissa Crawford. Um, I carry Métis ancestry from Penetanguishene and Afro-Caribbean ancestry from Jamaica. And I pass this ancestry on to my six-year-old daughter, Zyra, who's not with us today, um, as in physically here. She's, she's healthy and happy and thriving. Um, and I'm from Calgary, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, from what is currently Canada. Um, I've been doing Indigenous and anti-racism research for over 14 years, so over half of my life. Um, 
And I very much began to pursue this work because I had to. Um, Growing up in southern Alberta, in the bush, and then in farming communities, you really had to learn why what was happening to you was happening to you. And so I really love this work. Um, I do bring it to the energy spaces and have for about five years now. Um, And I really enjoy pursuing anti-racism work with indigenous and decolonized lenses. So whenever we're doing kind of diversity inclusion work, acknowledging like where, where we're doing it and who's involved um, in that work is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I'm the founder and managing director at Future Ancestor Services, so we're a youth-led professional services social enterprise. I have a small team of about 12 contractors across what is currently Canada. We have over 400 clients. We work um, with every federal ministry in Canada, many energy sector clients, but then also law, communications, publishing, um, post-secondary Um, education. And so we try to take a really interdisciplinary approach to anything that we do in the energy sector. Um, So I'm looking forward to talking a bit more about kind of my journey and the work that we do. And I I feel really honored to be on a panel of Black women. I've never had this experience in the energy space, and I'm sure many of you have not witnessed this before. So I also just want to say thank you to my panelists and and, Thank you, Megan, for bringing us together. This is really special. Awesome. So, Pamela, we're going to start with you. We're going to talk about climate emotions. Okay, let's talk. What do you think of first when I say climate emotions? Um, I immediately think of injustice. I immediately think of injustice. And uh, what I mean by injustice is... um, I think about, one, this work that we do um, in particular. And y'all have to, you know, no, I'm going to be frank. Um, if you know me, you know I don't hold my, hold my tongue a lot. I say what I mean, I mean what I say. When I talk about injustices, I do think about our work in this industry and how difficult it is um, for minorities, in, in particular black people, um, to be in this industry, to, one, get work, to, two, be employed, um, to get the support that we need. So I think about that. I think about the injustices that communities of color faced due to energy burden, due to climate. Um, so I think immediately about injustices when I think about that. Environmental injustice, climate injustice, energy injustice, workforce injustice. Um, but I'm also, you know, again, hopeful that we can start turning some of that around. But... That's what first comes to mind. Janae, where do you feel climate emotions in your body? What does that feel like for you? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, being a New Orleans native and from Katrina to now experiencing the actual impacts of climate change with the hurricanes um, last year with, well, the year before last with Hurricane Ida, and then the following year dealing with those impacts, lost my home, things like that. So when I say, where do I feel it in my body? I would say everywhere. Um, Emotionally, it took a toll seeing my city, my family, myself go through those things, go through not knowing if we're going to make it back home. 
because um, we don't know what it's going to look like. Then coming back home, not having power for weeks on end, um, having to move out of my home, throw 90% of the things I have away due to mold and trying to find somewhere to live in the midst of this that isn't torn apart. And um, so definitely for me, it's a whole body experience of when I say climate emotions. Larissa, what climate emotion is most present for you today? Hmm. For me today, um, I've been thinking a lot about just how I got to be here. Um, And really the privilege I have to have access to this space, to have access to the brilliance that's in this room on the panel. Um, And when I hear climate emotion, I immediately think to blood memory and our ancestral ways of relating to Earth. Um, And that's kind of really what I spoke about earlier on the panel. Um, But this climate emotion, it runs deep and for so long, our relationship to Earth has been a source of healing, a source of education, a source of history, of memory. And for so many of us, that relationship has been deemed a threat, but like for so many different reasons. Um, but when I think of climate emotion, I think back to that blood memory. Um, and I'm thankful for like the four-day work week I have so that Mondays I'm on the land, I'm connected with climate and with the natural world. Um, And that's become a really significant source of my healing. And as I feel my energy come down today and as I'm feeling, I I deal with chronic pain and um, I'm recovering from brain bleed. And so I'm kind of crashing right now. My pain's pretty bad. And I have this urge to be outside. I'm excited that we'll be on the water today, but... Um, when I think climate emotion, I think I go to that blood memory of healing and relationship to earth. And uh, that's what I'm yearning for, I'd say, today, especially as my pain's just kind of uh, fogging up my, <laughs> my processing right now. So for those of us working in energy services and climate sector, let's talk about climate emotions in the context of our work. Mm-hmm. Um, Pamela, do you find your climate emotions help or hinder your work on a daily basis? Oh, it absolutely helps my work. Um, There's no hindrance at all. Um, There's no qualms about what I do. What I do is to service people that look like me. It took me a long time to get here. I don't think... um, It's interesting, I told... um, my son, a couple of weeks ago, we're having a conversation. I said, this is the first time in my life that I honestly feel like I'm living out what I, my, my purpose mm-hmm. and what, I, what I'm supposed to do. While I've uh, focused on diversity within my work, um, I you know, sat on a diversity board at Coca-Cola for seven years. When I came to the energy industry, I immediately started working on diversity and working on diversifying the industry. I'm supporting work with workforce and working with now some wonderful, amazing environmental justice leaders and climate leaders in this space. And um, working with some 
young, brilliant um, African uh, young people who are facing climate challenges in their communities uh, and coming up with wonderful solutions. And it inspires me. So, no, it's not a hindrance at all. It's really an inspiration to keep me going and to continue to do this work for other people that look like me. Thank you. Janae, as a resident of New Orleans, I'm curious, how did Hurricane Katrina change how climate emotions are talked about in the workplace? Mm. And if it did? I would say, from my personal experience, um, it definitely shined a light on the bigger picture for a lot of people within the workplace. Um, I would say that a lot of people that stayed because, you know, they thought work was happening on Monday, you know. Um, it changed a lot of that perspective, and a lot of people started to, you know, New Orleans has a reputation of being a laissez-faire city, but we're really not. The people here work hard. They will ride out a storm to be at work on Monday. Um, but that changed a lot after Katrina because we really faced the uncertainty of our own grid, of our own buildings, um, of our own families and our own mental capacities during that time. And so a lot more people are a lot more proactive now. Um, workplaces, I find, are a lot more proactive in making sure employees are, you know, able to, you know, leave and not expected to be at work on Monday. Um, it has changed also the, the mindset, I think, from a corporation of how we move forward because you don't know what Monday will bring now when the hurricane is coming in. You know, before, like I said, everyone planned for Monday because that's kind of how it went before. Storm might skirt by and everything's okay. Um, but with the climate change that's going on, storms are getting stronger. So you don't know what Monday's going to bring after a storm. So it's, you know, you give out these numbers now to stay connected. You give out resources and so forth. Um, a lot of companies have moved forward with paying employees on these debit cards because they can't give them physical checks come that Monday or things like that. So it's changed a lot of how we operate in that sense. Larissa, what do you find activates your climate emotions most often in a work environment? I would say that there, I'm always acting on a place that comes from climate emotion. Um, I, I've really been brought up to see the natural world as an extension of self. And in our work at Future Ancestors Services, we explicitly bring in climate justice to any anti-racism work that we do because it's inextricable. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling with words right now. Um, but they're connected in ways that you cannot separate them from. Um, if we look at the histories of how Canada came to be, how the U.S. came to be and why it came to be. It came to be because of resource extraction. It came to be because of resource extraction. That's the foundation of the U.S. and Canada. And that, there's no denying that. And it was used, and the extraction of those resources, and this brings me back to the blood memory, um, were my ancestors who were stolen from Africa, who were stolen on their own lands. We were exploited. These human resources were exploited to extract the natural resources. 
And in order to justify the exploitation of my ancestors' human resources, they had to justify that inhumane treatment. And so you saw a settler colonial world that required and necessitated a hierarchy of races. And if you look at the history of race as we know it, biological and race studies like phrenology were used to create a hierarchical system of race for the purpose of extracting resources. We look at the history of the racism as we know it and experience it today, it's connected to resource extraction. Now, if, you, if you'd like to dive deeper into this history, the history of white people, that's the title of the book, The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, is an incredible book that goes through this in a really clear and concise way, where it becomes, again, very evident that we cannot resolve the racial injustices that we say we want to resolve if we don't acknowledge its connection to climate work. And so when I think of climate emotions, especially in the work that we do in anti-racism spaces, we are required to have that conversation. There's no separating the two. Um, And uh, uh, I find that that makes the work so much more powerful, where we aren't just looking at a symptom, but we're really acknowledging the root cause of this harm. And then what are we doing to, yes, address the symptoms, but proactively start to mitigate um, that root cause. And so I can give more examples later of maybe how that manifests in a workplace. But in short, that's, that's how I, I see climate emotion in my work. So climate change and its impacts are not universally experienced. The people in communities suffering most are disproportionately black, indigenous, and people of color. Janae, how do you see climate emotions and climate anxiety intersecting with systemic racism, sexism, ableism, and other threats, especially you know, here in New Orleans? Um, I think the, the country saw it play out here in New Orleans during Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina. Um, But what many people didn't see was the aftermath or the recovery and how racism, classism, so forth played a role in that. Um, I am fortunate that I work for a company that was literally birthed out of that injustice because we saw people with more resources, more means, um, predominantly well-to-do white families had solar panels with battery backups. And, you know, the only way to get solar was to purchase it. Um, And so most people didn't have access to $20,000, $30,000 to buy a solar panel to get back in their homes. Um, We saw homes left to sit in mold and mire because the resources weren't there to rebuild. Um, So New Orleans has been, as a city, you know, from the, the, the numbers fluctuate, but from 70 to 50% African-American have definitely felt that on an overall scale. Um, definitely single mothers have felt that as well. Um, you know, that one income household feels the impact of, you know, those lights not being on, all the food in the refrigerator going bad, things like that. So definitely we've felt it as a city and as a metro area. Um, 
there have been resources that come in for a short time and get a great photo op. Um, and then when those people, those trucks roll out, those families are still left to deal with that. You know, they're still trying to figure out how to put walls up. They're still trying to figure out how to go on to the next step because $500 worth of food went bad. And that whole refrigerator, not only, not only the food in the refrigerator, that refrigerator has to go now. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those are the impacts that New Orleans and the metro area, and I would probably say the entire Gulf Coast, feels on an ongoing basis. Um, that breeds an anxiety, a depression, um, things like that. I think a lot of it is shown within our youth. Um, you know, I always say that, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're supposed to feel invincible. New Orleans and New Orleans metro area youth have lost that invincibility feeling, um, especially in the years of late. We had a hurricane. We had Ida. We had another hurricane. Then we had another hurricane. They, and that's just in the span of two years. Mm-hmm. You know, they have definitely started to feel that their own mortality and it doesn't manifest like people think it should. You know, people are like, oh, they just pull themselves up from their bootstraps and keep going. But when they feel like life isn't worth it, mm-hmm. why, why, if they feel that the planet doesn't care, the government doesn't care, they, they, they're still missing half of their walls in their, in their house. I think it plays a big role into the frustration, the depression, the anxiety, the, the anger that a lot of our youth feel here in the city. Pamela, what's at risk if we don't very carefully think about climate emotions within this context of this, within the context of systemic and historical legacies of oppression and racism? So, um, I think it's a great point that you want to connect, um, you know, the several injustices because it's absolutely right. We, we talk a lot in this industry about energy burden, energy burden, low to moderate income, energy burden. But we can't talk about energy burden if we don't talk about climate injustice. We can't talk about energy burden if we don't talk about environmental justice. We can't talk about energy burden if we don't talk about institutional racism. All of those things are connected. It's woven in as a part of, um, you know, our country's history. Um, This was by design. Energy burden was by design. So with that in thought, we have to remember that now we have to go back and undesign the problem that it was actually designed to do. It did what it was intended to do. But now we're in charge of having to go back and redact that. Um, When I think about what happens if we don't do that, we're already in a situation of haves and have-nots. Our president, for the first time in history, we're seeing legislation being passed in the U.S. to support some of those wrongs. Because now they recognize, well, I didn't say they don't recognize, they're acknowledging Mm. the fact that, yeah, we've done minority folks wrong, and now we want to go put some money into these communities to do right. But we have to take care. We're going to have to be very careful 
and how we're working with these communities. There's a lot of discussions. I've heard some of the panel sessions and um, you know, I've been on some of them talking about working within communities and everybody wants to go work within a community to these uh, community-based organizations and that's great. But we're talking about people who have been oppressed, people who have been hurt, people who, people who have emotional trauma, um, people who are untrusting, and we've got to utilize uh, the people who know how to get to the people to help them understand how to best support them. And we've got to ask them, one, how do we best support you? But being able to facilitate that relationship, don't think that you're just going to go in there, let me connect with a community-based organization and go get these dollars. We've got to handle these communities with care because they've seen a lot. Mm -hmm. They've seen a lot. Mm -hmm. And they're looking to us now to really support them. So working closely with environmental justice leaders, leaders, there's people out there already doing this work, y'all, that have been doing it for years. People have been doing it for years. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's try to work with them, but just be mindful it starts here. It starts here. It's not going to start with your business plan. It's not going to start with your um, running the numbers and understanding what the numbers look like. It's going to start by changing this right here mm -hmm. and bringing some humanistic approaches into the way that we do this work. So the charge is that if we don't do this right, we're going to see solar on homes. We're going to see electric vehicles in communities, but they're not gonna be in communities that look like me because they still got dilapidated roofs. Mm -hmm. They still have health issues. They still got asthma and COPD. They still have potholes in their streets, you know? So if we don't remedy those problems first, we're setting ourselves, the, the transition won't happen. It, well, there will be no energy transition. If we don't go back and reach and help these communities that need that help. Thank you. Larissa, what do you think about climate emotions? How can climate emotions or climate anxiety be harnessed for this climate justice work? Yeah, um, maybe I'll, I'll put it in the context of disability. Mm -hmm. um, again, I have a small team of about 12 contractors. Every single one of them are disabled and or neurodivergent and or deal with chronic depression and or anxiety. Um, and most have one or several of what I just listed. Um, and we work, again, pro predominantly in like climate um, energy spaces. Um, and when I think about how we harness our disabilities, how we harness our anxiety, our depression about the state of this world. Um, we're seeing sites for innovation. So for example, um, urgency culture is a product of settler colonialism. It is something that defines the energy sector. It's something that defines the way we approach sustainability work. Always constant urgency. And sometimes it's needed because of the way the, the ecosystem within which we're working um, has these pressures. But oftentimes we have some agency to, to acknowledge that urgency culture. Um, so at Future Ancestors Services, when we look at 
our bodies, when we look at our disabilities, when we look at neurodivergency, instead of seeing that as a problem, instead of seeing our depression about the state of our climate and earth as a problem, we look to how can we honor these, um, the way that we exist? How can we honor these emotions, not suppress them, and ultimately not resolve them in a given moment, but to just hold space to honor them? And so at Future Ancestor Services, when we think about this, um, this is where our statement on the decolonization of time came into play. So we have a statement, and again, this is going back to that need to justify the ideological, ideologically justify what has been done to Black and Indigenous peoples around the world. I had mentioned before, we've, we've seen phrenology used, uh, we've seen biological science used, but we've also seen a relationship to time used to dehumanize Indigenous peoples around the world. As settler colonies were evolving and as missionaries were going to Christianize indigenous peoples, they saw that we don't relate and we didn't relate to time, to clock-governed society, to productivity in the way that civilized society did. And so what happened during settler colonialism around the world is they imposed a relationship to time that prioritized capitalistic productivity. How, how productive can we be? And this is the only valuable use of our work time. And any culture that doesn't align with this relationship to time is inferior, is in need of civilization. And so when we think of the consequences of this relationship to time that's been imposed on us, again, to ideologically justify the treatment of Black and Indigenous peoples around the world in order to extract resources, if we bring that all together and we think, this system wasn't made for us, this system and the way we're existing right now is not accessible And we're having severe health outcomes now because of this relationship to time imposed onto us. And so when we created our statement on the decolonization of time, we provide that background information. And actually the QR code, there's a QR code to the the statement on your your tables. Um, But then we name how we practice this in our organization. And so my team is expected to take at least one, if not two months off in the year, um, especially during the rest season, so our summer and our um, winters. Our team is expected to take days for recovery after um, after a climate emergency, after a traumatic service, because we recognize The time spent to recover from trauma is valuable use of work time. Being on the land every season, our team is expected to spend one week at least on the land to connect with Earth and to remind ourselves that this is what we're doing our work for. This is an extension of self, our work, our existence. And so when I think about holding space for climate emotion, that's one really tangible way that we're doing it and that we're seeing clients do it in workplaces. 
Um, but it gets back to like, if we really invest in understanding how connected so many of these social injustices are, climate injustices are, the more effective we can be at addressing the symptoms and making how we're pursuing climate change work and energy work, how we're doing it, not just the work outputs, but how we're relating to each other in the work and the process um, has made it enormously more accessible for our team members, for people that we've been able to contact with and to hold space structurally to hold space for climate emotion and to honor the reality of those emotions uh, and the impact on our health. Yeah, it's such a great example. Um, Thank you, Larissa. And I'd love to ask the rest of the team, how else do you resource, honor, and care for your own climate emotions? So... Janae, do you want to, are there any certain practices or um, that help when your climate emotions are activated or how you lead? Absolutely. Um, For me, um, it's interesting that, you know, she talks about connecting with the land. Um, For me, having my own personal garden Mm. helps me reconnect with that feeling of earth, feeling feeling grounded. Um, I, you know, it's sort of a running joke, but it's an actuality of, you know, I always say I'm communing with my ancestors when I'm in the garden. Um, My father had a garden. My grandmother is, you know, I come from a a family of sharecroppers and so forth and so on. So, you know, there are a lot of gardening practices I, you know, that I do. I come up with when I'm out there. Um, I always say it's because, you know, like my dad is telling me or my grandma's telling me. And so for me to get grounded um, even when I was in my little tiny apartment while my house was being rebuilt, I had a little patio garden. Oh. You know, I had mint and basil and just little things that I could grow just so I could feel connected. And the great thing about gardening and the, the planet will still give us back what we need, you know. And so just seeing something come to fruition, even when, you know, it's eight months in, I still don't have a kitchen. I do still have some success here that I can touch, that I can feel, and it's a tangible feeling for me. Love that. Pamela, how about you? So I try to meditate, but my mind races way too much to <laughs> meditate anymore. <laughs> so you can really try. I do try, and then I'm like, do I still have dishes and I need to put up? <laughs> so that doesn't work. Meditation hasn't been working for me as of late, but I love to hike. Yes. I'm seeing the connection here, right? Yes. As they were telling their stories. Yes. Um, I love to hike, and those of who know me know that um, I, you know, that's where I've been being out in nature. And when I can't hike, and when I don't, um, when I don't make the time to go and hike the wonderful mountains in Georgia and wonderful hiking trails that we have there, or hike Kilimanjaro in Africa, which I did, by the way. <laughs> Um, yes. When I don't do things like that, I, I get out and I walk in my neighborhood, um, just being in the air, feeling the sun on my face, just being in nature. Uh, it restore. It honestly restores me. Yeah. Um, and connecting that, and I would say connecting to the land. Like I don't. I've never considered myself like a feeling person, and it's weird the way that things things start to connect for you, especially as you get older. I grew up on basically a farm. Like we had to get out there and get in the um, the get the crops pulled. Like every Saturday morning, my dad would make us. We hated gardening, hated it. And when I think about like now, mm-hmm. all of those practices, 
because my father, you know, I know how to, I do know how to grow my own food. Right. I do know how to live off the earth if I need to. I do know how, you know, those things, it really does, the earth does give you everything back that you need. And so I think grounding yourself, nature grounds me as well. Larissa, anything else you wanted to add to that list? Yeah, no, that is, we're so aligned. I'm loving this. Um, <laughs> we didn't plan this. We didn't yeah, talk about we, this. we really we did didn't. Not, not <laughs> but yeah, like, and I always, like, in any of my dating profiles, it's like a warning. Like, I'll get cranky if I haven't been around mountains in a while. But it's like, it's, a, it's very true. Like, if I feel a misalignment or if, like, I haven't accessed earth or nature, I get anxious, I get depressed, I get cranky. Um, I was in Paris in 2018 on a horribly stressful panel. Um, and I, there was an indigenous elder on one of the panels that I spoke on. And she had come to me after and she could see I was frustrated. And she sat me down and she, she, um, and I told her, I, I miss home. Like, I haven't been in the mountains. I haven't been in the bush in so long. Um, and I'm really struggling right now in moments like this. I'm struggling not only because it was on climate, the, the panel, but there were so many, there was so much harm that was being replicated and what was shared by some of my panelists that I was just... I was in a place of really feeling frustrated. And she, she sat me down and she told me, put your feet on the ground. So, like she had me take off my shoes and I put my feet on the ground. And she said, close your eyes. And she's like, think of, think of home. Think of the land that you come from. And like I pushed my feet down and I thought of this land and, and the earth. And she said, you're home now. And that whole process was so grounding. Um, and then a couple of months later, I went to um, one of the elders that um, did my sessions. We had one-on-one sessions throughout university. And I was experiencing this again and like putting my feet on the ground. It, it helped to a degree, but it wasn't a permanent solution. And so she asked, well, what, when was the first time your feet touched the ground, like your bare feet touched the ground? And I was like, oh, it's been a while. Toronto's a concrete jungle, and I was living in Toronto at the time. And a couple days later, I went out on the land. I was able to put my feet on the ground, and I came back. And all of a sudden, I had so much clarity, and I was able to address so many emotions that were stemming from climate emotions, that were stemming from stress, et cetera. Um, and so when I look at how I've built that into my daily practice, again, I have the privilege of controlling my schedule. And so I have a four-day work week, and I get out of phone service at least once a week. I live very close to the mountains, and so I do everything I can to get out there. Um, it's really important that my, to me that my daughter grows up on the land. We grew up in the bush. Um, one of my uncles was a Blackfoot code talker in the Vietnam War. And so he had the craziest survivalist skills. And so growing up on the land and being able to like live off the land was so important in shaping my identity and my values. And again, this understanding that earth is an extension of self. And so as a parent, 
seeing Zyra speak about Mother Earth and I want to do art with Mother Earth and like um, having this excitement about it and that connection um, to me really helps me deal with a lot of the overwhelming climate emotions that I can, uh, that I'm confronted with in my work and existence and I found um, these practices have really helped. Perfect. So, Kind of one of the last questions um, before I go to the audience questions is the theme of this year's AASP annual conference is doing everything differently. So, Pamela, what is the one thing conference organizers, ASP and otherwise, climate conferences all over the world, uh, could do, be doing differently that would be supportive of our climate emotions as energy service professionals? Okay, so I just so happen to <laughs> consult conferences. Yeah. You know I that. Know. On <laughs> what they should do different. Not that they always listen to me. Yep. <laughs> but I do consult them. Um, you've got to bring in more of the people aspect of this. Bring in, um, but, you know, I understand that they're scared that they're not going to get the sponsors, but the thing is we've got to show them that we'll still show up if they bring in community folks who have this lived experience and can tell you how you can best support them. Let them be a part of this process. Like, yes, this conference is for us, but let it be for them too. Let it be a space where they can come and tell you what they need um, while we're all wrapped up in these jobs trying to figure out what the people need. Let the people come and tell you. Um, invite them to your conference. Let them speak. Let them tell you their stories. Uh, I've been suggesting this for years, and nobody's. But people, again, and I get it, because they're afraid the sponsors will say, oh, but we might get picketed, and we want the utilities to come, and they're not going to come if they think this community organization is going to be there. We've got to work across lines to get this work done, period. So however we need to figure out how to do it. Um, and I think that if we show them that we will, we will support and sponsor conferences like that where we, it can be a voice for the people as well, then, um, then they'll, they'll, they'll listen to people like me who give them that advice as to what they need to do. Janae, if we were to restructure one thing about how we work so that it would be more supportive of our climate emotions, what would that one thing be? I would say giving people space and opportunity to reconnect. Um, I've seen as part of this garden group, again, some workplaces have instituted like workplace garden pods, um, rooftop pods, parking lot pods, giving individuals that knowledge, one, of how to grow and, and sustain their, their own lives is, is far more than any salary could provide for one. And two, there is something relaxing in dirt. And I know that sounds crazy because we're all grownups, but <laughs> there is something so relaxing about playing in the dirt, getting your hands dirty, getting out there. Um, I cannot, when I worked from home, you know, a immediately after a stressful meeting, like a smoker would go have a smoke break, I'd have a garden break. And I'd go and I'd plant something or replant something or just walk in the garden. Yeah. Um, I think having that space, that green space, um, is one thing that, corporations, especially those in large buildings and so forth, would definitely benefit from um, just giving people space to breathe. 
Finally, Larissa, what do you think we can learn from our experience of climate emotions that will support our ambitious climate justice agenda in the months and years to come? I would say allowing these emotions to start infiltrating the way we think about success. Um, And at Future Ancestors Services, we have relationship-centered strategic planning, and it's a model we've developed to localize um, knowledge with any kind of client that we work with. And one of the first steps in this process is looking at our relationships to time, to productivity, to leadership, to profit, to funders, to community, to clients, um, and more. And one of the first questions we ask in a strategic planning process is, how do we know these are healthy ethical relationships? How do we feel? Or how, uh, how do the community tell, the communities tell us they feel? And so we start getting into the language of emotions. We start getting into the language of, I feel supported. I feel rested. I feel like there's space to be upset. There's safe space to be upset. And so we start by structuring our understanding of success and what we're working towards with the language of emotion. And by allowing that to center your direction and, I guess, define your direction, then when it comes down to the numbers, the programs, the the grant money, the numbers in seats, the conferences, all of that, which often runs the risk of being the success itself, we completed this, yay, we've succeeded, without actually asking how do we feel or how did our relationships result by the end of that completion. Um, So instead of situating the numbers, the projects, the things as success, bringing the language of emotion into how we define success um, is one way that I'm really seeing how organizations and workplaces are structuring spaces that center those emotions and what makes us human um, in a way that becomes more accessible and can contribute to more just, sustainable, and ethical futures um, for non-human kin, diverse people on Earth. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, We have a few minutes now for some questions from the audience. So if you have any, feel free to write on these pages and... Uh, Jennifer, at the back, we'll just wave to her. She'll bring them up. So I have one, um, and I'll just throw it out, and anyone who is interested in answering it can go for it. What is the source that you tap into to stay motivated and passionate to continue championing your mission and work? For me, the source is the people. I'm having conversations with um, EJ leaders and community folks um, with, you know, minority-owned businesses, with people who want to get to work in this industry. I'm having those conversations, and um, they're, they're excited. They haven't seen this happen before, um, and so they're excited, but they're also scared 
and they're also nervous, and they're still also traumatized. Um, and so uh, that really is what keeps me motivated, keeps me going. I'm super passionate about this work as well. I mean, I have been for a very long time, and I'm still passionate about it. But I think um, probably my work, doing more work in the climate and EJ space over the last um, year and a half, two years, has really kind of just, you know, um, brought that uh, up for me is just show me it on a, on a whole different level of where this where we can make the most impact in this work yeah I would say for me it's definitely the community as well I mean Posigen being uniquely centered here in New Orleans um, you know their customers are my neighbors I went out the other day to go visit a customer who actually ended up being the mother of one of my high school classmates you know, so it really is my community. Um, even in the areas where I go and I visit in other states, you know, there's always that connection back to someone. You know, it's, you know, if, the, if it's the person that I'm with and, you know, they know that person's that person, that person's cousin. It's, it's really getting in touch with that community. It's having those conversations within the community as well. Um, one of the things I did before I took this job, I started talking to some faith-based leaders, some community individuals I know, you know, like, what's the big thing about solar? Why, why don't more of us have it? You know, and understanding that there is this misconception and it, it could have been some companies in the past. And, you know, I think this is a common thing that African-American homeowners have had to deal with where people have come in to promise you everything under the sun, but it's really a ploy to take your house. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, so-and-so had that, and that's how she lost the house. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if it's too good to be true, if it's really going to cut my bill, there's probably a catch. So getting to understand that and having those conversations and understanding what those barriers are and how I can personally help overcome that. Um, for me, it's, it's personal. Yeah, I, I would also say it's personal, and I, I'd say in short, history is definitely what gives me a directed motivation, I guess. Ever since I was really young, like grade eight or nine, I bought a college-level history book, and that really started me on. I'd grown up with oral teachings and histories, and uh, that kind of sparked my interest to more constantly be exposed to, to history. And so... Grew up, and I, I always read. I'm always reading a history book, one that I agree with, and then I always try to find one that I don't think I'll agree with. Um, and it's really interesting. And this comes to this idea of future ancestors and ancestry. Um, when we look to the past, and we really take and hold space to explore the actions and inactions of our ancestors. We look at the actions and in and inactions of our ancestors and how those actions and inactions have shaped the realities we've inherited today um, and now are shaping today. When we hold space to understand that causality, we're better positioned in space and time to, to reflect on our own cause and effect and our own responsibility whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we're shaping realities not only for ourselves, for, but for future generations. And so when I, I say the, the past and the history, like that's, that's what I mean. That, to me, is so motivating to learn from our ancestors, to learn 
um, and leverage the power of those who came before us, which I find a lot of young activists don't have that connection. And so when I see them learn about Malcolm X, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, like when I see them learn about those people, all of a sudden their worlds open and the capacity to think of a world beyond what is immediately in front of us right now just expands. And so for me, history and knowing and understanding it and our place in it gives me a lot of, again, directional motivation in this work. I just wanted to say, um, when I first got here to New Orleans, one of the things that I did on Sunday, um, some of my friends in the room know this, <laughs> I went to visit plantations. Yeah. And some people are like, wow, you did what? And um, for me, walking on the grounds of our ancestors, it really grounded me in being in this space this week. And it really grounded me in, in doing this work. And I think I explained that to, to um, the folks that asked me, like, why would, you, why would you go to a plantation? And I'm like, you know, I'm touching walls. Somebody touched this wall Some, in, in history. Somebody was walking on this earth. And it really did. It centered me. I, did, I didn't feel the, the, I didn't feel the sorrow. I almost felt the gratitude that I am now here walking in this space, the same space as you. Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. But, that, <laughs> but that's honestly how I felt. I felt honored. Yeah, that is quite an experience. I, uh, my, I visited the plantation where my mother's family worked, and I expected to feel that sorrow. I expected to feel a heaviness, but it's just the opposite. I felt a pride. I felt their pride in me mm-hmm. that I was the, I'm the fruit of their dreams. I came and, I came and went freely. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. I came and went freely. I... I was in uh, Scotland in 2021, and my last name, Crawford, uh, came from John Innes Crawford, who was a Scotsman who owned Belfield Sugar Plantation in Jamaica. And uh, Crawford, my last name, is a slave master name. It's a brand. Mm -hmm. And being able to go to Scotland and having this emotional moment where we're looking around these grand rooms knowing it's our ancestors' labor, their blood, their sweat, their, their bodies that created what we were sitting there, like what we were sitting in. And I was there as a free black woman. Um, I expected to feel sorrow. Um, and all... All I could really feel was that gratitude that you were speaking about. Um, Gratitude for everything that has happened to be able to allow me that mobility and the ability to be there knowing the significance of being there. Um, Because I think so many of us have been denied access to our histories, our ancestries. And so even the privilege of knowing the significance of being there, I felt. Mm-hmm. Gratitude, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
Thank you all. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela, Larissa, and Janae. Such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for everyone in the audience today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your questions. Um, Thank you to the AESP Women in Energy Group for your support in the planning and executing and coordinating of this event. Thank you to the planning committee for taking a chance on this topic and this experience. And I hope this has been a helpful session for everyone. And um, yeah, please stay tuned for the episode. You'll get to listen to it again. (laughs) Thank you so much. Do you want to help to ripple the impact, expand the reach, and support the ongoing work of Plugged In? Your contribution is valuable. Here are a few ways you could help energize this platform. You could share this episode on social media and with your colleagues, friends, and family. Please tag Plugged In so I can share it back. You could review, follow, rate, and leave a testimonial on Apple Podcasts. I may read some goodies on future episodes. Your business could sponsor an episode or a full season. Please reach out to me if this is of interest. Finally, you could head over to buymeacoffee.com and for the price of a coffee, $5 a month, you can help support some of the costs that go into doing this work. Thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe to my mailing list at pluggedinpodcast.ca. That's where I share more about other offerings and events I lead, including a monthly online book club and annual self-care for climate care retreats. I also want to thank Summerhill for the time to work on this project. And finally, this podcast has been created on the lands of historic Treaty 18 on the traditional territory of the Petun and the Huron-Wendat nations. Take good care. <laughs>